Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, February 23rd. Of course, listeners of our Crack Rackets podcast will know here at CRHQ, we've been nose deep in all things college tennis. It was so fun for us to have the opportunity to broadcast the men's and women's Division I National Indoor Championships over the course of the past two weekends. But those are all consuming events, right? 13, 14 hour days on the broadcast and you're preparing for the next day's matches. Again, head has to be completely in the college tennis world. That said, we are well aware there have been some developments in the professional tennis world. And obviously, last week, we had four ATP events. We had the WTA action in the Middle East kicking off. That action continues this week as well. And now we get to the ATP 500s. And there have been Too many storylines, both on and off the court, that we have yet to have the opportunity to discuss. That's the plan for today's podcast, and it's going to be a two-mini-break Wednesday here today as we try to catch up on all of the action. And joining me on today's show to help, or I should say the part one of today's show, to help play catch-up is the man you turn to when you've got storylines to hit across the ATP and WTA Tour. He is a producer of all sorts of content for Tennis.com, Tennis Channel, a repeat offender on this mini break podcast uh, at this point of course a returning champion on our show it is our friend david kane david welcome back how are you doing my friend alex i came as soon as i heard (laughs) (laughs) no honestly the closest i've gotten to college in the last couple of weeks is i got a package of old college essays that my mom had been holding (laughs) for me so Glad to have you back in the program because that's all I would have been able to help out with today. Oh, I was conflicted. You were stepping out on me with Phil Fama. I was like, oh, no, have we lost David? Like we our senior correspondent on the ground is, you know, again, we've lost him, especially as we're on the brink of war. And I need I need my, you know, reports on what's going down. And we've lost him. An episode, Phil, that is yet to air. I mean, every, with, with every day, I run the risk of it getting completely stale because it's another day of Ostapenko playing another informed player. And I run the risk of just being sounding like a complete and utter idiot that I hyped up this this crazy Latvian. And then she goes and loses to Amanda Nisimova from 4-0 in the third. Thankfully, did not happen and backed it up today with a win over Krejcikova. So into the quarterfinals, top 10 or bust. Sticking by it. That's what I like to hear. And the good news for you is this episode will be buried by 7 p.m. tomorrow by a second episode. So don't worry. If you don't like the takes, it'll get hidden. But no, it is always a pleasure to have you back. And again, when we have so many different, a broad range of topics, I should say, to discuss, I can think of no better person to do it with than with you, of course. Uh, before we do that, shout out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com, for the latest and greatest equipment, apparel, anything you're looking for. If you use our promo code CR15 at checkout, not 
only will you get 15% off all sale items. You'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, which, let's be honest, if you're buying tennis equipment or apparel, you're likely spending over $75. Of course, you'll also get a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. What shoes are you rocking nowadays, David, on the tennis court? You feel like it's either a straight Nike guy or like Uniqlo, A6, something off the beat. I have to admit, I'm quite a Yonex brand apologist. I've been wearing the same <laughs> pair of black and pink uh, Yonex sneakers since about 2016, 2017, justifying them by the fact that I don't play all that often. So they're still kind of fresh. Sure. So there's a bit of tread on the bottom that's I'm probably asking for a major injury one of these days. So I probably have to <laughs> trade them in soon. But for right now, they're... They're too good to let go. So I have a follow-up question is, do you work out in your tennis shoes? No, no. My arches okay. are very are very soft <laughs> and delicate and any any more than five minutes in a tennis shoe and they're flat. <laughs> so I need to be in a running sneaker. I need something that gives me a high arch so I can be raring and ready to go for episodes yeah. like this. Good. We're, we're at the before the five-minute mark and we're hit your arches. So we hit the under. Um, yeah. So my thing is, and it's always stupid, but I always like to work out in my tennis shoes because my thinking is, well, I, if I'm doing something athletic, it's going to be in them. So if I'm running, why wouldn't I run in my tennis shoes? That's how I run on the court. Now, obviously, health-wise, I know it's a terrible decision to make. But guess what? I'm not an elite athlete. So my health is a little less relevant. Um, that said, friends at Tennis Point and I are going to make it a mission. 2016 was the last time you updated your shoes. That's horrifying. Let me let me talk to my league people, see if we can't get that rectified. That's the least we can do. The least we can do for all the podcasts. circa 2016. I can't say for sure if I started wearing them in 2016. <laughs> I have a distinct memory of Stan Wawrinka wearing them in London <laughs> that year. But. Okay. I'll take it. I like it. But no. With all this, so what, rock, what racket are you rocking? Still Yonix as well? Yonex E-Zone 98 2018 paint job. I've yet to be swayed by an updated to the to the colors. I thought I was going to I thought I was really going to be excited for this one, but they're really similar to the V-Core, I have to say. I thought it, I was expecting something a bit more more flashy for my E-Zone, my E-Zone buddies, my Nick Curioses and Anna Ivanoviches. You ready to have E-Zone your mind, Hive raise up. You ready to have your mind blown? It's, I'm actually really excited for this. Do you know it's actually Yonix, not Yonix? And I can give you the backstory. Yanni Yonix, who the founder and Dave Lemke of Tennis Point came on and has told me the story. And yet we just pejoratively, it's Yonix. I've taken too many semesters of Japanese in college. We had a college discussion earlier that I really should be knowing that it's yo as in Yonix, but yeah. coming from Long Island, it's always going to be Yonix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. It's the same way as a Midwestman, it's always cracked rackets. I can't help it. It's just like, look, the A's are the A's. I do what I do. Um, although I think Apple is how you do say it. What? It's Apple? Like, no, it's Apple. Apple. Yeah, that's, Apple. What I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, what do you, that's how else are you supposed to say it? All of that said, we got plenty of tennis to discuss. Unfortunately, we got to start again with an off-court thing. And like, I don't know why I always bring you on for the off-court things. Maybe it's because I enjoy hearing your opinions on them. Uh, but let's start with last night, Alex Virov, end of doubles, frustration with the chair umpire, overblown. Obviously, he takes full swings at the chair umpire's feet, hitting the chair. Now, he doesn't strike the chair umpire, but comes as close as humanly possible to doing that. And it wasn't just one swing. It was two. It was three. I believe it was four in total. And again, he you went saw back the, a second time. Yeah, exactly. And you saw the chair umpire's foot flinch on a couple of them as well. And that speaks to the moment. And immediately, given the violence of the action, it draws to the fact that, look, Read Ben Rothenberg's piece in Slate magazine, uh, in Slate.com, Racket Magazine, about the uh, alleged domestic abuse he uh, he 
I don't I, his allegations against him is the words I'm looking for here uh, against a former spouse and just you know again for a oh, significant other spouse excuse me um, and just it was unacceptable there there's no denying that and of course you saw immediately people draw parallels to the Carolina Pliskova incident back in I believe 2018 and her swinging at the chair umpire and hitting the chair and you know ultimately she was fined I believe the report was a four figure sum and she matched that donation to a different charity as well but when you look at this incident and the allegations he faces off the court as well it's just now a pattern and I Beyond, I mean, obviously, I'm curious your thoughts on what the ATP punishment should be, but what is your reaction to all this given those domestic abuse allegations he faces as well? I mean, first of all, it was a very surreal morning. I woke up around 3.30, sort of apropos of nothing, and checked Twitter, and the announcement that he had been withdrawn from the singles event had just been recently made. And you saw the video of what happened, and I think what was so egregious about the act was not only that it was so close to the umpire, which is different than the the Carolina Pushka incident. Carolina's was pretty specifically against the chair as an object, whereas it really did feel like Zverev was very close to and was very aware of how close he was to striking the umpire in that instance. And then not only that, the fact that he went back a second time to curse out the umpire and then strike a second time. I think it's just, it's a hat on a hat of sort of aggressive uh, behavior towards an official. And I think there are multiple conversations to be had here. I think there is a general conversation about the sort of increasing aggression towards lines officials. It was a conversation that started to have a little bit um, at the Australian Open regarding sort of the tone in which Daniel Medvedev took. I mean, you compare that to this, it seems like two totally different instances, but it does feel like a gradual escalation of what players feel comfortable doing or attempting to get away with uh, in the face of uh, frustration at at, at a call that hasn't gone their way. And I think it's, it's important that this was addressed so swiftly by a tournament that I'm sure was very, much looking forward and happy to have the defending champion, a high ranked player at their tournament made a swift decision to remove him from the singles. It was the best possible decision because you want to give that message to players that if you do this, even if it's at a doubles match, even if you're just there to, you know, for, for fun and laughs and you, you fly off the handle, your singles tournament is immediately in jeopardy and you're, and you're immediately withdrawn. So I think that was the best possible scenario. And then you also have to look at the fact that any instance involving Zverev and acts of aggression are going to be colored by and influenced by the credible allegations that you mentioned. Yeah. Of I, domestic assault and domestic violence. And I, and it sort of definitely corroborates uh, what we've heard from Olya Sharapova that this is, this is very much in him. You know, you can only claim to be an innocent victim of circumstance and we see this kind of behavior is in you. You think, well, if this if this is how you react when you're mad about like an out call in a doubles match that was with Feliciana Lopez, that was basically an exhibition. I mean, I'm sure it was part of his appearance fee contract to play this doubles event. How are you behaving when things are really not going your way in your personal life? I mean, I think it just creates an even greater um, emphasis on the need of the ATP to investigate this fully. I mean, we saw uh, a culmination of an curious investigation when he had a similar sort of tour divorce in Cincinnati and U.S. Open a few years ago. By the end of the U.S. Open, a decision was made, a fine was issued. We're going on now, uh, November, December, January, February, almost five months of this Olya Sharapov investigation that was ostensibly launched by the ATP that is yet to be finalized or updated. And so I think now the ATP can't hide from this as much as maybe they're trying to pull down this video clip from social media platforms. This is something that on-court evidence of this kind of behavior, something needs to be done. Absolutely. And, 
you know, I was on a red-eye flight back from Seattle to Indianapolis, and I was able to watch the, you know, it was the best red-eye flight I've ever planned because I was able to watch the ending of Kozlov, Dimitrov, and then the entire debacle that was Virov Brooksby. And then, you know, you get back 7 a.m. or whatever, and this was yesterday, and so my whole sleep schedule is screwed up. And I get up this morning thinking, you know, I see Alex Virov withdrawn, and I thought, okay, it's because his match ended at 4.30, and I'm like, maybe he just was like, physically, I'm a wreck. This just makes no sense for me to keep playing. That was really stupid. And then I keep reading on. It's like, no, he's withdrawn for aggressive conduct. And to your point, I said, what? Like, what is the clip? What happened here? You could not find it. It was taken down so quickly by the powers that be. Obviously, an embarrassing display for professional tennis. And for Alex Zverev, who has to understand every action he takes at this point is under a microscope, particularly given the allegations he faces off the court, unacceptable. Unacceptable. And there needs, again, some sort of action. And whether it's a fine, a suspension, this is where... The ATP as a litigating body, just they almost have no teeth, you know, no grounds to stand on because where have they administered any sort of punishment like this before when it hasn't been related to some sort of steroid usage, right, or some sort of performance-enhancing substance or, you know, a, a flunk drug test for a, a cocaine or, a me, you know, methamphetamine or something like that. We've seen them step up in those substance-related instances, but, you know, very rarely – when David Nalbandian, you know, went to strike the the side box, I forget what year that was, and he ended up striking a chair umpire and drawing blood on the leg, and that was an immediate default, and I believe a suspension was given out on, in that instance as well. Like, that's the one incident I can recall where something like that, and then the Kyrgios incident, I suppose, in the U.S. Open in uh, Cincinnati, which is the culmination of a couple of things. That's really it. Like, very rarely have they it just feels like they're very you know as a policing body very rarely is there any sort of action they haven't had to in many instances sure. i mean i think we're we're exiting this sort of well even Djokovic, when he struck the line judge though in the throat at the us open it's like you know again just quickly did he miss any event other than that one because of it no like he didn't and i would argue i mean this was perhaps even more egregious than that yeah i mean i think i would say where the atp is quickly exiting its era of good feelings. I mean, this idea that like these men are beyond reproach, there's gravitas to these men's matches and they're, they're all the greatest of all time. And they're all competing for these, this, these historic landmarks and milestones. Um, and I think in the last couple of years, probably starting with that um, Djokovic default from the U S open with the pandemic and now the COVID vaccine um, debacle that Djokovic now finds himself in, you know, this sort of indifference to negative attitudes towards Medvedev and now Zverev, who are very much poised to be the next top two players in the world following the retirements of a lot of these uh, all-time greats. You have, you know, players like Riley Opelka who are, you know, dusting up a lot of um, gripes about the sure. state of how the ATP is run. I mean, I think I don't know if they're entirely prepared for real life. And I think it hasn't been real life on the ATP for a lot of years. And in the last couple of years, we're seeing just how unprepared they are for numerous, I don't want to say bad apples, but numerous, you know, um, instances where they really need to step in. I mean, I think they're, mm -hmm. they're very good at, at putting Kyrgios in his place for better or for worse, but I think they need to be able to expand their scope a little bit and address who is and is not worthy of punishment and who needs to be, uh, what messages do they as a governing body need to send in terms of player conduct? Yeah, you're right. The, when you say this era of goodwill, it's that everything was covered by the, 
you know, surface that is the big three, right? And the big three polished up everything else. It's, well, in the biggest stages, it's okay. We've got Rafa and Roger and Novak and these familiar faces who have, you know, these fans have bought equity in and just they relate to and they'll defend to the death all these different things. And now you're right. It's as these new personalities and new forces emerge. How does the ATP balance maintaining its presence as a governing body, as an authoritative figure, while also allowing these athletes some room to build a brand and flash their personalities. That said, this is just an unacceptable action, and you would think it's pretty cut and dry. And in terms of, again, an enforcement mechanism, do I have the ATP handbook memorized? I do not. This is conduct unbecoming, certainly, of professional tennis. A fine will be levied. My question is, will there be a suspension? What do you think? I imagine it'll be similar in the vein of a Nikiris, a suspended sentence, a suspended suspension where, you know, on on the grounds of a further um, offense, maybe then at that point, a suspension would be issued at, at that point. I doubt that. I mean, it's unlikely that Zverev would, would do something like this again in within the time frame that I'm sure will be allotted uh, for him to act uh, in a better manner. I'm sure he certainly probably didn't expect the. Um, the reaction that he got as quickly as he did. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's the, you know, the ATP is very much at a crossroads. I mean, we're, we're building up to this potential changing of the guard, even as early as this week. I mean, Daniel Medvedev could be number one in the world and it, and it should have been this sort of, you know, mystical transference of power in light of all we've been through. You know, the fact that this is going to be the first man outside of the big four since Andy Roddick in 2004. And, on both ends, it's sort of there's an ickiness to it in light of, you know, the way Medvedev behaved in large swaths of the Australian Open and the fact that the number one ranking is being seeded because your number one is, you know, a vaccine skeptic. I mean, this is really like it's not even a changing of a guard. I wrote on tennis.com today. It's really like consequences for a rebel without a clue. I mean, it's just it's a totally it's not a good look. And I don't know where the ATP goes from here. I mean, I think they've been very slow moving to adjust to these new personalities and and changing dynamics within the tour. You know, there's a pandemic still going on. I think it's just, it's a lot. So I think, you know, it's in short term, it's great that he was swiftly removed from the tournament, whether there is a heavier uh, punishment levied that remains to be seen. I think it would certainly satisfy a lot of tennis fans to at least get an indication that this, you know, that this person who was just suspended for, uh, aggressive behavior is also getting his domestic violence accusations properly vetted. I think, you know, at that point, you can sweep the off-court stuff under the rug so long until it starts to bleed out onto the on-court. Now that affects the ATP's product, and maybe they will have more of an incentive to make that uh, investigation now that their um, their brand is being directly tainted in instances like this. You think about the on-court storyline, Sunshine Swing coming up, Indian Wells, Miami, Rafa's healthy and coming off of an Australian Open title. Will we see Novak Djokovic at these events? If we do, certainly on-court, he's playing pretty well. And yeah, Medvedev chasing world number one, Zverev in the mix there as well from a rankings perspective. And the FAAs, the Alcarazes, the sinners of the world all on the rise. Also, there's a lot to celebrate on the court. Yet something like this, you know, again— it penetrates not the non-tennis sporting bubble. And they talk about it, you know, again, not just tennis.com, but, uh, you know, this is now a representation of tennis. This is a leading story because of how egregious and how just in the open this act of violence was. It was just like horrifying. It really was. It was just embarrassing. And obviously he issued a public apology immediately. But 
that's not enough. And we'll see what the fine is. We'll see if there is a suspension. I would agree with you. You imagine it's now probation where something like this happens again, some sort of outburst. You will be suspended. And yeah, we'll see what happens there. Of course, we got an update today that a third par- you know, a third party counsel has been brought in in the investigation of Alex Virov and uh, his de- uh, domestic violence, ab- uh, domestic abuse case. And, you know, again, we're still waiting a significant update on that case, according to Ben Rothenberg, who, of course, broke the two stories. Alia Sharapova has still not been interviewed by the ATP, which you would imagine they would want to hear her story if they act- if they wanted to get to the bottom of this case. Zero's out of Acapulco. You're absolutely right. He's now, you know, again, removed from the tournament. And unfortunately, that cloud hangs over that event at this moment. But hopefully, some of the tennis we see unfold there will uh, alleviate that cloud because Medvedev, Nadal in the draw and Tsitsipas as well. And we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. I want to get to the tennis, though, if we may. Any final thoughts? Am I missing anything? Did Is there any any other things you'd like to say? Uh, nothing I, other than I just want to, I feel loath to lump in Medvedev with the Sparrows and the Djokovic's sure. because as, as controversial as sometimes Medvedev comes across, I do get a sense and I'm, and you know, it's my word against everybody else's, I guess, or anyone else's who's, who's free to feel that way. I feel like he's a genuinely good guy. And I feel like he is often contrite in these press conferences. And I feel like he is genuinely trying to be a better person. He certainly doesn't have any kind of major controversies hanging over his head. He is for by all accounts vaccinated has never been accused of anything worse than you know being a little bit too snippy with the umpire or you know a bit of a honeymooners banter with the with the crowd after after a match so i think that kind of behavior i think maybe the atp is prepared for it's i think all the other stuff that then gets lumped into and conflated with on-court off-court behavior that makes everything excuse me that makes everything sort of just a muddy mess but all in all yes great that Medvedev is in Acapulco, that he won and is that he is in position to hit number one. Hopefully he does it in a way that he's able to earn it and doesn't necessarily feel like it's because Djokovic just is maintaining a light schedule because oh, yeah. for last, last, he sp- last he spoke, he's not sure that he'll be able to play Indian Wells or Miami Djokovic. So that yeah. certainly puts him in pole position to be number one by the clay court season, if not sooner. No, it, again, another thing for us to monitor here as an off-court storyline. But with that said, Let's get to the on-court stuff because there's a lot of fun tennis for us to get into as well. And the place I have to start, and something I know near and dear to your heart, is the Pankasans we see unfolding. Yelena Ostapenko winning the title in Dubai in impressive fashion, whether it was her 7-6 in the third win over Svantec, 7-6 in the third win over Kvitova, bagel in the third over Simona Halep. She dished out back-to-back bagels, that third set against Halep, the first set against Kudermatova. And, you know, again, now she's into the quarterfinals of Doha. This week, wins over Krejcikova, Nisimova, Osian Doden. You look for Elena Ostapenko. It's beyond a two-week run, though. You go all the way back to her Eastbourne title at Wimbledon last year. She's now 31-11 and 11 over a six-month stretch of time. 31-11 and 11 over 40 matches is a legitimate sample size. And, you know, again, hasn't been a cupcake schedule for her during that stretch either. You look... Overall, in terms of by the rankings for Yelena Ostapenko, in terms of players ranked outside the top 50, 12-5, and five, which doesn't sound that impressive. But again, 19-6 and six against top 50 opponents during that stretch of time. You look for her against the top ten, uh, 20, 5-4 overall. That includes the wins over Krejcikova, over Iga Svantec, over uh, and Anastasia Pavlchenkova coming off of a fantastic French Open run. The power tennis has returned. Obviously, she's striking the ball so well and 
go watch the second set of that semifinal against Simona Halep. Just because Halep was tracking down everything. And Halep's playing really well right now, and we'll get to her in a little bit. Um, but when you look for Ostapenko, to me the thing is, it's physically. She just seems to have taken another level as a mover. And let's just remember, for Yelena Ostapenko, she's still 24 years old. Like She doesn't turn 25 until June of this year. And, you know, again, nowadays in modern tennis, 23, 24, 25, that's when you start to hit your physical prime. And look at last season, players like Sakari and Conteve and uh, Paula Bedosa, who's right around Ostapenko's age as well. Just things seem to click for them. In a way that I think think things have clicked for Ostapenko here these past six months, David. Like, I think, yes, she's a former French Open champion. And back in 2017, she played electric tennis to do so. But in my mind, this is the best six-month run we've ever seen from Ostapenko. I mean, it's fascinating to go back to Eastbourne because heading into the week in Dubai, I actually really hadn't been paying attention to Ostapenko in terms of where she fell in the rankings and to see her so close to making it back to the top 20 at the start of that week. It really is a testament to just how well she's been playing since the grass court season of last year. Also made the semifinals of Indian Wells, another result that you kind of just forget in the sort of aftermath of just the wildness of the end of last year was very close to beating Azarenka in that semifinal. And who knows how that final goes, if it's Ostapenko versus Bedosa. You can never quite tell with Ostapenko. But I think what's been most impressive has been this stretch since January. I mean, and and to have a full circle win today over Krejcikova after being so close to beating her in Australia. And that results seeming sort of on brands for Ostapenko at this stage of her career, someone who can really push a top player, but maybe doesn't have quite the nerve, the fitness, the intensity to get over the finish line and was able to shake off that loss, come to St. Petersburg, make the semis, win, win Dubai, and now is on an eight-match winning streak through the quarterfinals of Doha. It's insane. I mean, you look for Elena Ostapenko, but I haven't been able to find her for many, many years, <laughs> least of all her serve. I mean, that has been as much as, as, as impressive as her movement has been. I mean, the fact that she has been able to develop a credible, functional first serve something that she did not have when she won Roland Garros, to be clear. That was a crazy serve performance through all seven matches, multiple double faults, issues getting that first serve in. It seems like a smoother delivery over the last couple of weeks, and it has really made all the difference, averaging mid-60% in her first serve percentage. Look at me bringing up stats. I mean, the fact <laughs> that she has been able to do that is really, that is a statistic that you want to just like stamp down. If she is over 60%, she is winning these matches quite comfortably. She dipped below 60% against Anisimova, and it went to three sets. I mean, it's sort of really, it goes to show what a cornerstone that first serve is with her game. The fact that she's able to get in a good first shot, and it just sets her up for the rest of the point. It frees her up to on return to go for big returns and break serve more often. I mean, it's just, it's a game changer because she's always been a threat off the ground. She's a a really phenomenal doubles player, a good all-court player. You know, when she's playing like this, and I think part of my consternation about the WTA tour of late was the idea that there was no one really there to compete with Ash Barty. It was Ash Barty and... 99 dwarves. I mean, it just seemed like it was really no one between her and and these titles anymore. And I think at least in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing Ostapenko, we're seeing it at Contabite shake off the loss in Australia to win St. Petersburg and play well this week in Doha, making the quarterfinals as well. Um, this is a situation where it is now potentially Ash Barty and the Baltic girls. I mean, that's at least a narrative. That's something you could sink your teeth into. Maybe three players competing for these big titles. We obviously have Indian Wells and Miami coming up, and that's going to be a big test for these players who've had to play a lot of matches where Barty has been absent, shocker, since Australia, and will be coming to Indian Wells fresh, uh, assuming she plays. You know, that'll 
potentially give her an advantage. But now these are matchups that I'm really looking forward to seeing. Can Kontavai, can Ostapenko out hit sort of the variety and defense of an Ash Barty? That's, that remains to be seen. But all in all, just a tremendous run from Ostapenko. And again, the fact that she was able to beat Krejcikova today as convincingly as she did. Big ups. Yeah, well, again, you look for her 2017. She goes 45 and 21 overall. That's the year she wins that French Open title. That's a 68.2% win percentage. Again, over a six-month stretch, she's 31 and 11, 74% win percentage, highest of her career. You talk about some of the numbers that are, you know, backing up what we're seeing with our eyes. That 2017 season, her hold percentage, 60.3%. She's up to 70.9 this season. And by the way, that's four consecutive years of growth, going from 49 uh, 59.14 four years ago, which is not very good, all the way up to 70.9, which, by the way, still isn't outstanding, but it's top 25, top 30. Ish at thirtieth ish, which when combined with how well she returns serve, and you know she's always been a top twenty five sort of returner. Now forty three point seven percent, that's third on the year, and she's currently seventh amongst you know over the last fifty two weeks amongst top fifty two players, uh, top fifty players in return percentage. It's you're right, like the first serve just affords her that much more time to be aggressive and a, a ability to be aggressive with her return of serve and to watch her just dominate Simona Halep and Veronica Kudermatova's second serves. Just dominate them. It was as if it was a drop-and-hit feed, and Yelena Ostapenko says, all right, I'm taking a free swing cross-court down the line. I'm changing my locations. Don't give me a backhand in my strike zone. If you do, I am hitting a winner. And that's how well she was executing. And there were some backhands down the line she had against Simona Halep. Again, just go watch the second set where she's down a set and a break, and you're just like, where is this coming from? And it just, you know, again, her... She's always been able to anticipate well. She's always read the game extraordinarily well, and that's made up for her lack of elite movement, if, to put it kindly. But she just seems to have taken another level physically. And I, I, I do just think, like, again, you, you can see it in how well she's moving into the outer thirds of the court and that even when she's not anticipating well, she can still be a bit more defensive and she has a little bit more time in the corners. And, you know, she's always been someone where if she has time to get her racket on the ball, she has the strength, the power to do something special with it. You talk about the double skills again. Her ability to hone in on the return of serve, pick her spots, follow it forward, hit the swinging volley out of the air. She plays an aggressive game style that just disrupts the rhythm of her opponents. And, you know, obviously the stats are indicative of the success given she is 31 and 11. But you're right, Indian Wells and, you know, last week, uh, this week as well, following it up, how close she came in Australia to beating Krejcikova. She just has, you know, she's a member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. She always has been. And, you know, I joke about it. It's the house on the end of the block. You don't know if it's going to be lit up this week or not. It's lit up right now. Like, she's got the decorations out. Hey, come hang out. I'm back in town, folks. And one wonders. It's like, does she see the success of the Bedoses of the world, of the Radicanus of the world, the Goffs of the world, and be like, whoa, 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 wait. I have been dominating these people. You know, I was the person. And I'm still 23, 24 years old. Like, now it's time for me to go on my run because it does feel like things are open at the top of the game. One wonders if she saw that and how it influenced her because it just – it feels like she's rejuvenated. Like, it just feels like there's a focus now that wasn't there earlier. And maybe it or helps at- to be winning, but it just wasn't there. Or ever. I mean, yeah. I don't, like I said, I think even when she was at her quote-unquote best in 2017, it was a scrappy year. I mean, yeah. 59% of her of hold service holds feels high. And I watched a lot of those Ostapenko matches. Every service game felt like a total coin toss. And I mean, 
Ostapenko has never lacked for self-belief. I think she's, yeah. you know, that's one thing that, you know, when you look at this top 10 of players who are potentially, you know, trying to do things for the first time, not only has Ostapenko already done it, but she's always someone who's believed that she has the raw talent, that capability to be the best player in the world. And now to have that actually backed up by like evidence <laughs> and, and facts, I mean, like that just makes her all the more unbeatable. And you think about the players that she's been able to beat in a row. I mean, have four Grand Slam champions in a row in Dubai. I mean, you look at some players, you know, Australian Open wins and, you you know, you don't really see that kind of um, murderous row of opponents to, to win a Grand Slam title. I mean, it seems like at this point, Dubai uh, should be giving out Grand Slam uh, trophies <laughs> given given the quality that Ostapenko had to go through and, and continues again this week in uh, Doha with Krechkova. Um, you know, she's very much in play to make the top 10 this week if she could win the title. And even if she doesn't, she still has the buffer of last fall's Indian Wells point. So not a tremendous uh, loss for her if she doesn't have the same week this time this year. And we'll have opportunities in Miami. We'll have opportunities on clay, on grass. She's always a player who's preferred the specialty surfaces. So to be able to rack up all these wins on hard courts can only help her moving forward. And again, she's with that raw talent, that tremendous aesthetic ground, ground game off the forehand and the backhand. I love watching her hit both of them, especially the forehand, but I love the backhand as well. It's a game changer, as I said. I'm really looking forward to seeing her compete um, over the next couple of weeks because I think this is really going to change the face of what had was starting to be sort of an uncertain WTA landscape. Well, I think what's really fun right now as well is that, you know, again, it's just – it's that every match you feel like you get to see these players tested. And you look at the first-round draws last week in Dubai. Like Sabalenka Kostyuk was a first-round match. Kvitova Georgie, first-round match. Kasakina Sviantek, first-round match. Kenan Ostapenko, first-round match. That was one quarter of the draw. Like, that was one quarter and all of those names in. And you can continue to go up and down the board and see those sorts of matchups. You know, Mertens Teichman first-round matchup, and Kudermatova-Azarenka, an unseeded first-round matchup there in Dubai, and you see those results, again, in this week's draw uh, in Doha, whether it's, you know, I don't, I'm not going to list them all, but the point is, you can see them all over and over again, and that leads to the question, I know it's something you like to hint at on Twitter, and something we've discussed off-mic as well. Very subtle. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't count if it's not a Real Housewives gift. That's what it really matters is, unless you, that's when you're talking serious that's when you know actually take note this is a real take um but, but now we said it yeah exactly um but you know looking at the wta because ostapenko is playing excellent tennis right now and certainly and i'm really excited because this is going to be my first top 10 15 20 25 club update of the season i haven't used it once this year david and now shout out to us i'm very excited because we get to whip that out today um you look over the past few months there hasn't been a member of the top 10 club. And what I'm referring to, because it has been that long, tennis abstract, you go to their sets, leaderboard, hold percentage, break percentage. Typically, if you're in the top 10 in hold percentage and break percentage, you're either the best, second, third best player in the world. And I think it's notable. You look on the men's side over the past 52 weeks, it's you know Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Zverev. Those are the guys who are in the top 10 hold percentage, uh, to hold and break percentage. And just outside of that, you know, Tsitsipas, because of his one-handed backhand, he's top 20, not top 10, but he's in the mix. And guy like Casper Ruud with all of his 250 success, he's a top 15 club member. 
You look over the past 52 weeks for the WTA. At the start of last season, Muguruza was top 10 club. She dominated the Middle East. I thought she was the best player through the first three months of the season before she got injured in Charleston. Uh, She was top 10 club. Iga Sviantek riding the 2020 French Open all the way through to last year's French Open. She was top uh, 10. You know, you had Onjabur through Wimbledon was top 10 club. How excellent she was, of course. You know, if you look for Ashley Barty, the backhand return kind of keeps her sometimes out of the break percentage-wise, but she's ascending towards that ranks. However, you look since the U.S. Open last year through now, there hasn't been a member of the top 10 club on the WTA Tour. And you look right now, over the last 52 weeks, there's not a single player who ranks top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Now, there are four top 15 club members, three top 20 club members, three top 25 club members. There's some depth. There are no doubt there are a lot of players who are playing very well right now who have well-rounded games. But there's not a single member of the top 10 club. So I ask you right now, David Kane, is everyone good or is no one excellent? on the WTA tour. There is a distinct lack of excellence going on on the WTA tour right now. We're starting to see some little sproutlings of signs that maybe there's some excellence to be found and to be mined um, on the WTA in the WTA garden. We have some solid performances from Elena Ostapenko. We've had some really great performances from Annette Kontavide, who is quietly rebuilding herself after that uh, surprising although maybe not too surprising, Australian Open exit to Clara Towson. We had a phenomenal match from Arena Sabalenka today. She beat Jill Teichman and her inner saboteur. Didn't hit a single double fault in two sets to, to beat the uh, the former Dubai semifinalist since he runner-up. Really good win for Arena. And is now into the quarterfinals of Doha, you know, where she is defending a tremendous amount of points because she won the title in 2020. Uh, Barbara Krechkova is the de facto number two. If Arena, I think, doesn't make the finals or win, I'm not great with with rankings math, but she's in operating from behind, but playing really well. And I think, but I think overall, the reason that we're not seeing this consistent crop of several several core players making it deep at these big tournaments is because of the lack of the consistency in those uh, statistical categories. We're not seeing players dominate. The way that we're and I think when you're not winning a lot of matches, you're not racking up those those statistical milestones. I think it kind of it's sort of chicken or egg a little bit for me, but it certainly it certainly makes sense that there there is a lack of I mean, even from Barty, who has played the best by far out of everybody, but has certainly not had to deal with a tremendous amount of competition um, going on down based on those based on those numbers, not just based on my opinion. No, I. I'm really happy you like the top 10, 15, 20, 25. Those numbers. Yeah, it it, it makes sense right now. Again, there's no one amongst the elite of the elite. Now, a couple of things. A, I'll go on the tangent quickly. I really miss sixth grade vocabulary quizzes, and I wish I took like all those vocabulary quizzes in life more seriously just because you use the term saboteur. That was one in sixth grade honors English, shout out, where that was on one of the quizzes. That was the same week as Zenith and Nadir. And why we ever use the term peak when the when the word zenith is out there to be used instead, like I've never understood that. That's one of my pet peeves in life. Zenith is just a better word than peak. It just is. Um, prove me wrong. What Z words do we use in life consistently? We have a, a low-hanging fruit opportunity with zenith. It's, it's such a – I mean I guess peak is not really an adjective of the way we've kind of made it an adjective. But sure. I certainly don't feel like zenith somebody – zenith so-and-so would be – a bit strange, although I will admit that 
saboteur is not a sixth grade vocabulary word for me. Any of our LGBTQ uh. fans listening will, will know that it is a RuPaul drag race trope <laughs> where RuPaul attempts to get her contestants to conquer their so-called inner saboteurs. Whether they have one or not, it's a good reality TV sort of narrative arc where you've conquered your inner saboteur. And certainly no saboteur has been bigger and more visceral than the arena sabotage like a server over the last couple of weeks. So glad to see her conquer that. Slowly but surely, I'm cautiously optimistic. Tomorrow is always another day, but at least it feels like she's able to log in a couple of clean serving sets and was trailing bet training and was trending better in Dubai as well, even though she did lose to Petra but that felt like more of a, an out hitting from the ground situation more than an arena not serving well situation. But she's certainly someone who, if she definitively cleans up those serving well, she is somebody who I think is probably going to break into that top 10 club sooner rather than later because of how much she plays and also how consistent she can be when she is at her best. Aesthetically, what sounds more intimidating, peak Serena or Zenith Serena? Zenith Serena. I'd be like, oh, man, Zenith Serena was not to be f***ed with. Like, come on. Like, peak Serena was good. Zenith Serena was something else. Like, Maybe you would uh, say, like, invincible Serena? I don't nah, know. I'm it's, on a little, the... it's a little zany to be talking about Zenith. I'll, I'll let buzz, you have it. No, I was a big Buzz Lightyear fan, so just I think it's disease for me. That's what that's what we're starting to learn here. Um, no, I mean, again, just to conclude the clubs here, because just to say who the members are right now, top 15 club, Ashley Barty, who, again, I actually th- – she is trending in the right direction. Like, let's be clear, four consecutive seasons of growth in her break percentage. I actually think it's a matter of when, not if, she'll be top 10 club because, uh, again, trending in all the correct directions. And for her to even be top 15 club is indicative of the growth of – in her backhand return, clearly not a liability any longer. Other top 15 club members, there are three of them. Do you want to try and guess them or do you just want to hear them? Um, Top 15. Top 15 in both hold and yeah. break percentage. Danielle Collins, who was okay. the 250 queen last June, July in San Jose. That run certainly boosting her stats there. Like when mm. you get a lot of wins in straight sets, you're going to fly up the rankings. Own Jabour, who is the closest member of the top 10 club, but she's 10th in hold percentage, 11th in break percentage. So it would have been literally the very bottom of the top 10 club, but would have qualified because she's very close. And again, she's just had sustained success over the past, you know, one of the wins leaders in these last uh, 52 weeks as well. The last one's the most interesting one to me. Simona Halep. Back into the top 15 club based on the success she's had. I mean, she's always had the break of serve success, but the serve returning to form, she's now back into the top 15 in hold percentage. She's number one in break percentage for whatever it's worth. She's uh, retaken the number one spot from Sarah Cerebez, Tormo, and Jess Pagula. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's your top 15 club. Makes sense. Collins, Australian Open final, Jabour, bunch of fourth rounds at slams, extraordinarily consistent. Halp hasn't played as frequently, but in her return, she's had a ton of success. And then Barty's Barty. Top 20 club. This is the interesting one to me. Conteve, who has just roared up the rankings. And, like, again, she is, uh, she's like 16th and 16th in hold and break percentage. She's right there. Shiantek, who has gone from the most consistent presence in the top 10 club last season, but has now seen, what, the Florida's top 20 club? Like, okay, yeah, if this is if this is as good as she gets for the rest of her career, she's going to be in the top 10 for a while. Paula Bedosa, your other member of the top 20 club. Now, top 25 is spicy. Krejcikova, Tossin, 
and Vondrusova, huh. who's the other one I would circle. Marketa Vondrusova has been sneaky good since the Olympics last year. She's won about 70% of her matches during that stretch as well. And if you're looking for this year's Sakari and Kontave, I would look at Ostapenko and Vondrusova as the two I would turn to to say, watch for them to have another bounce back, big breakout sort of year. But to, to the big, broader question, is anyone great or is everyone really good or is no one great? I know we still disagree about Barty. Like, I would lean towards Barty right now is amongst the great. And I just, you're right, I don't think she has a clear challenger for her. You know, Sabalenka's hold percentage is still top 10, but her break percentage has fallen through the roof, which is actually kind of funny because when you think about all the double faults, it really hasn't hurt her hold percentage that badly. I don't know. I like the Muguruza. Muguruza's fallen off a bit. Obviously, she's not even in the top 25 club anymore. Svitolina is usually a, a, a constant in that top 25 club who's just pretty good at everything. She's fallen off a little bit. Goffs and Raducanu's and Fernandez's of the world aren't quite there either, although Coco Goff would be a member of the top 27 club for whatever it's worth. I don't know. Like I, I, I do think I would lean more towards everyone's good more than no one's great, because, and I just think we're just like a month away from someone being great and just no one's ripped off the run yet. But I see both sides of the argument. I just don't watch women's tennis for good. I watch it for great. And I think you think when you think of Ash Barty, and I know I've been very tough on her, but you think of who would be her closest competitors right now. You think of Naomi Osaka, Bianca Andreescu, Sophia Kennan, three of the other most recent pre-pandemic slam champions, none of whom are, for all intents and purposes, active right now. I mean, Kennan is playing, not playing that well. Last we saw Bianca Andreescu was on a wellness retreat in Costa Rica and does not appear to be on the entry list for Indy Wells in Miami. You know, Naomi Osaka is dealing with her own um, comeback, you know, obviously trying to put a, a brave, bold, bright face on and, you know, take these wild cards and try to rebuild her ranking from scratch. But, you know, these are the players who would be challenging Barty as Sabalenka has been dealing with her own serve struggles for the last couple of weeks. She would be someone who I would consider to be a close rival. Those are four or five really, if they were all playing really well at the same time, that is a really compelling uh WTA field and we're we're really been we've really been robbed of that in a way that I I can't think of the last time maybe since you know that 0406 swing when sure. Venus Serena Kim Kleisters and Justine Anna were all having injury issues you know uh Justine had mono um Kim had a wrist injury Serena was out with the knee and um Venus had protracted abdominal issue I mean there was like all kinds of stuff happening in the mid 2000s but ironically enough when I first started getting into tennis I remember all that quite well um and that's sort of the conundrum where, yes, Barty is that much better than everybody else, but everybody who would be competing to be just as good as her is sort of kneecapped right now. And we're, and we're left with, you know, players to have to really prove themselves on the go. And it's tougher than it's tougher than you would hope it would be. I mean, Krejcikova lost today, Bedosa lost today. You know, Contavite's still in, but had a tough match against Elise Mertens, a former champion here. So, I mean... I mean, the more Barty sticks around and continues to pick up these titles, you know, the argument for her will speak for itself. But I think, you know, some of us will do the hard work of actually, you know, asterisking some of these yeah. these milestones that she's hitting. Well, well, I mean, she where was her closest competition when she was doing this? But I mean, yeah. all in all, she still has to win. And the fact that she was able to win in front of her home crowd down five one in the second set to a Daniel Collins. Very impressive. But, you know, overall, I've seen I've seen and watched more impressive. Well, I do think that's what makes these Middle East events so appealing is that in the absence of Ashley Barty, the rat race is on. 
who's challenger number two, who should be the number two player in the world. And obviously there are a bunch of players right now in contention for it. Certainly, you know, with a couple of wins this week, I think two more Sabalenka is back in that number two spot. I think if Conteve wins the event, she'll move up to number three in the world, but be like 40 points behind Krejcikova going into the Miami Indian Wells stretch. And, you know, with all that said, I guarantee you Muguruza will win one of the next three events. Like, just lock it in. The most dangerous Muguruza is the one, the right, written off Garbine Muguruza. Like, that's when she strikes. The moment you say, oh, you know, she hasn't been playing well. Like, again, bad Indian Wells, bad, you know, after a really good Chicago and just going into that year-end finals, it was, eh, you know, Garbine had a great start to the year, but she's fallen off here at the end of the season, U.S. Open, Indian Wells, and then she wins the year-end finals. Like, that's just what Garbine Muguruza does. I'm telling you, she's winning either this event in Doha, Indian Wells, or Miami, but, like, if you were to say you're top five right now, you'd go, all right, Ashley Barty won, and then you'd pause, and you'd be like, well, for indoors, I guess Conteve, but... You know, Bedosa played really well outdoor on the hard courts, and like Simona Halep's also kind of playing really well. And like, does her loss in Australia really look that bad in retrospect? And it's just like all of these different things. It's like if I asked you right now, give me your top five. Who are your five best players on the WTA tour as of right now? It's an impossible exercise. It's like, yeah, Barty won, and then I don't know. It depends on the week. I mean, it feels kind of appropriate that this week started with, I think, a four-woman race to be world yeah, number two. Sure. I mean, Konsevai could have been world number two if she won the title and Krejcikova lost in the first round. I mean, and that's going to be a continuous um, race that we're going to see play out over the next couple of weeks because everyone is so tightly packed within, I think, about a 500-point range between Sabalenka, now Krejcikova, and um, Konsevite. And, yeah, I mean... <sighs> Phil made me try to you know, predict a year in top 10. And I was like, I mean, no one's playing that well. <laughs> I mean, And it just felt like, well, also, if you're talking about like year-end rankings, basically everybody in the top eight is flanked by that those year-end championship points, none of which sure. are not going to fall off until November. So you would think now that gives everybody in the top 10 a distinct advantage to build up as many points as they can to stay and you know potentially offset what could be a big fall if they don't make the top eight. Um but yeah, I think if you're talking power rankings, top five, I guess it would be Barty, Ostapenko, Kontavite. Keys. Do we remember no. how good she looked in Australia? Madison Keys, who just lost to Harmony Tan yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> that um, Madison Keys. You know what? I, I, this would be in the college. Yeah. That was a college me answer. I apologize. But my thing would be like, look at the tennis abstract for, uh, forecast for this event. Like Annette Kontave right now, 24.9% to win. A chance to win. After that, it's it's just that even everywhere. It's like Sakari, seventeen five, Shviantek, fourteen, Muguruza, twelve, Jabura, eleven, Ostapenko and Sabalenka, nine. It's like even Coco Goff, who is the you know, the least of the favorites entering the quarterfinals has a 2.7% chance of winning. There is never in the history of a forecast been where the eighth member of a quarterfinal has a two point seven percent chance of winning. Speaks to the parody right now and just you know, the fact – I see, I I would say it's no one's playing exceptional. Everyone's playing pretty well. Like, I don't think Conteve is playing poorly. I don't think Muguru- – well, Muguruza is not playing well. I don't think Sakari is playing poorly. I don't think Sviantek's playing poorly. I just don't think their best is that exceptional right now. Like, Annette Conteve's good is very, very good. But she doesn't blow you away with her power tennis, right? She outworks you and just she's not going to beat herself and she's going to use your power and redirect and all these different things. And it does feel like 
a power tennis player like a Sabalenka or a Rabakina on the right day can can beat her and knock her off. And that's why she's not that definitive number one. We don't have a definitive top five. I don't know. I mean, it just it, feel, it, yeah. It, it feels like plugging your finger into a dam yeah. and then, like you have like one good result from somebody like I would have had Bedosa and Halep in my power rankings top five, but they both had sure. kind of meh couple of weeks in Dubai and Doha and Sabalink is playing a little bit better. Who knows for how much longer? So maybe she's creeping up. Even Krejcikova had a really phenomenal run in Australia and looked like a really big favorite to make that final and then hasn't really looked quite the same since losing to Madison Keys uh, in Australia. Madison Keys, who again, lost to Harmony Tan. But otherwise, you know, it's... <laughs> It's really anyone's guess. It feels like we're just seeing, you know, players ranging from not good to solid, you know, and that's, and the difference there is we haven't seen Ostapenko and Kontavite do what they need to do at a big event. I think, again, as I told Phil, I think if we're reevaluating after Miami, hopefully we will have a much clearer picture of who is playing very well. Because right now we really just have like one and a half to two players that we could start playing very good. And then, Hopefully by the end of Miami, we could say these five players are in contention for this French Open title because pretty much everybody's decent enough on clay. So it's not like you're going to see anybody really recede um, after the hard court swing. So you can use these results to accurately forecast them. We just need for we just need results to forecast. Now that is the, the very good point. The surface versatility of this top group, that's the other thing that keeps them so bunched together is it's like there's no definitive favorite on on clay courts, no definitive favorite on hard courts amongst the non-Ashley Barty crew, by the way, because – and especially on grass courts. Like Ashley Barty is the favorite uh, given she won Wimbledon last year and you see how the game style makes sense there after her. I mean, again, we've seen like a season and a half out of Sabalenka on grass courts and like, again, Sakari and Kantve still very unproven, it feels like, on that surface as well and all these different players. Yeah, it's going to be a fun year. It's going to be we'll, – we'll have to continue to do updates on this. Is everyone good or is no one great uh, throughout the course of the season? That will be one of the themes here on the women's side. Uh, and again, it's, by the way, really fun set of quarterfinal matches this week in Doha. You look at the action. Sabalenka, Sviantek, I'm in. Goff, Sakari, I'm in. Shabur, Kantave, come on. Muguruza, Ostapenko. <sighs> My sleep schedule is already screwed. Like, that's the problem here. And so now I'm going to have to stay up and watch these matches because your boy needs to watch some live tennis. It's been far too long. Really, really good stuff down the home stretch. And again, as according to the tennis abstract forecast, and that Conteve is your favorite. That makes sense given how much winning she's done. Let's flip gears and talk about the men here now because uh, certainly, and we're going to go over the hour mark. I apologize for that. But I think on the court, one of these storylines over the last six months uh, has been the next next gen, next gen 2.0. And it's Alcaraz and it's Sinner and it's FAA. Those guys are clearly now the leaders of the next pack. And you look for Carlos Alcaraz coming off of a 500 title last week or, you know, for Yannick Sinner who gets the win over Andy Murray today, but, you know, ends up getting in as one of the reserve players at the year-end finals and just, you know, another good run for him in Australia, although Tsitsipas kind of blitzed him off the courts there in the corners. Or uh, quarters or FAA, who gets his first title last week in Rotterdam and just, you know, again, another final for him, uh, excuse me, two weeks ago in Rotterdam, another final for him last week and just makes his first U.S. Open semifinal, makes his first Grand Slam quarterfinal, all of these different things. These guys are clearly playing the best tennis of their career now. They're also all clearly very good already in their career. 
I'm going to ask you for the power rankings. One, two, three. FAA, Alcaraz, Sinner. In terms of the brightest futures, where are you at with those three? And by the way, this is a no preparation question just for all of you listeners at home. I did not tell him this was coming. I said we were going to talk about them, but I got to get the power rankings because all three for me are locks to win a Grand Slam here this decade. That's been – they've been part of my group for a while. Uh, so again, if you were to power rank the three, where are you at with each? Oh, that is hard. I mean, I yeah. think based on resume, momentum, seeming surface versatility, I have to go with Captain America, Carlos Alcaraz, as my number <laughs> one. I mean, I just feel like he has really reinvented himself over the offseason, you know, ticked off uh, a hardcore slam breakthrough right off the bat. So we're not going to think of him as a clay court specialist. Gets a good win this week in Rio, his first 500 title doesn't have the same, you know, big match baggage, perhaps, of a Felix sure. Auger Aliassim, who finally won his first title. The, the, I mean, the longer that that losing streak went, the funnier I found it. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm only human. And then, of course, she, he wins his first title, and then the very next week loses another final. In fact, I think <laughs> I did a poll of how long I think anyone thinks it's going to take for him to get a winning record in finals. I mean, it could happen in relatively short order. It could never happen because he has really spotted himself quite a deficit. Um, But all that said, I do think that Felix is my power rankings number two behind Carlos because I mean, I mean, I go back to Monty Python. Why is she a witch? Because she looks like one. Why is he going to be a top player? Because he just looks like one. He just has that technique. He has the, he has the game. He has the demeanor, you know, he has the, um, Stictuitiveness, the fact that he has not allowed this record in finals to really ruin him. He just comes back each and every time, has really made great strides at major tournaments, the way he did it in uh US Open semi US Open semifinal, Wimbledon quarterfinal, now an Australian Open quarterfinal, where he was leading um Daniel Medvedev. Didn't get it done. I would say it was a bit of a mental lapse from him. I got into a fight with some Canadians over whether it was Daniel winning or Felix losing. I think when you're up two sets and you don't win. It's kind of on you, but ultimately I think he's trending up and he's somebody who, again, has that sort of versatility across all surfaces to really make a name for himself. And then sort of just by process of elimination would be Yannick Sinner, who I think is still, still reads a lot younger than he even is. I feel like, I mean, obviously Carlos Alcaraz has done a lot to like physically look a lot older in a really short period of time, but Yannick still seems to be a player with the mind and the, with the tennis uh, intellect, I should say, maybe without the same like competitive mindset necessary necessary to really start winning and breaking through in these matches. As impressive as it was to see him make the Miami Open final last year, even though you know Sasha Bublik thinks he's a robot, I think he still has some upgrading to do before he can really start competing for these big, big titles and start taking out um, big name players. It's sort of the next step for all three of them, but I think in some ways, even though Sinners had the head start, I think he's sort of the the least likely to do it first of the of those three. For Alcaraz, first of all, for you to call him Captain America was hilarious. Shout out to you. Um, B, for – I mean I've just never seen a physical transformation like that in a four-month stretch. Never. And I mean – If I'm we were the ins- kind of people to be suspicious, it would be well, something to be suspicious well, of. That's but why we're Captain choosing America- not to be suspicious. No, it's, yeah, it's just to call him Captain America. He's got some super juice in his veins clearly because that's just – Oh, no, juice. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair. <laughs> Um, well, what was the uh, formula? I forget what it was called in Captain America. Whatever that stuff, Tony Stark Sr., not Jr., Tony Stark Sr. put in him. Um, but yeah, it's 
I mean, again, I've never seen anything like it because physically the guy's just a monster, just an absolute monster. 18 years old for him to not only hit the ball the way he does, have the power in his first step and just, again, the, the pace he can create in these different portions of the court and what he can do on the slide and then the versatility as well, the feel on the drop shots, his comfort level moving forward, the fact that he can swing through on the backhand wing. I mean, you know, again, he absorbed Fabio Fonini's best shot in the semifinal and Fonini was trying to just use the top spin of Alcaraz against him, used that pace and just bunt down on the ball, hit flat. It didn't matter. Alcaraz problem solved his way out of that and, you know, worked Fonini around the court, incorporated the drop shots, hit behind him. And then Diego Schwartzman just didn't hit the ball big enough to hurt Alcaraz. And just Alcaraz covered everything and just, you know, again, he can turn defense into offense, but he's also comfortable moving forward and just such a well-rounded skill set. And yeah, the second serve hangs, but in terms of who can do the most things on the court... I think the answer is Carlos Alcaraz, like without question. He is the guy who has the most options available to him athletically, uh, you know, physically, uh, and then skill set wise, just forehand, backhand, slice, moving forward, et cetera, et cetera. I like how you call it the sure thing in Felix Ogier-Aliassime. He just is. He's a pro's pro. The way he attacks with the forehand, his aggression, his willingness to move forward, play on his terms, that just works. And it works across surfaces. And I know the clay court win percentage is down compared to the other surfaces in his career. But look at his early success that he had on clay. And I really do think he'll be able to rediscover that because I think from a game style and again, I think the improvements he's made moving into the outer thirds and, uh, you know, again, on the fluidity on the backhand side, getting in and out of corners. I think he's gotten a lot better at that. And it's always worth remembering he's still 21 years old. Like, yeah, he's been a part of the ecosystem for a while. And he was the one who was the youngest to do X, Y, and Z before it was Carlos Alcaraz, who's now the youngest to do X, Y, and Z. But there's a list of like six guys. And it's those two, Djokovic, Nadal, Del Potro, Gasquet, who are always the youngest to have done everything. And Felix has always been on that list. And Alcaraz is now on that list. But to me, there's just something about the Sin Man. Like I just – he just plays his game style and there's a there's an F you to him. Whereas in like Alcaraz I think is the showman of the group. Alcaraz is the one with the flair and the flash and it's going to be very easy. I mean I think people who get upset when you compare him to Nadal, like you're just wrong to get upset. From a game style perspective, from a persona on court perspective, there are absolute comparisons to make. Now to hold him to the standard of 20 – you know, two grand slams or bust or whatever, like, or 21, excuse me, that's ridiculous. Like, no, no one's saying he has to win 21 slams to be considered a success, but you can see the game style parallels. Felix has the clean forehand, you know, again, it's it, 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 not to make big three comparisons here, but that assertiveness, but there's just something about the center, the way he steps up into every backhand and the, assure, the assuredness in himself and the way he's also improved. Like, I think one could argue there's like a fine line. He kind of works the line between Alcaraz and F.A. Like you have the F.A. on the one side who plays that game style. You have the multiple components to Carlos Alcaraz. And then you have Yannick Sinner who's somewhere in between. And I think it's a really fun contrast in the group between the three. Now, as of right now, I think – I don't know. Like it's really tough. I think all three have a spot in the top ten right now. Like I think all three are that good. And you start to worry if you're the Rublevs of the world or the Berrettinis of the world with those guys coming. There's just not a lot of space right now in the top 10 because Djokovic and Nadal are going to hold their spots. Barring a suspension, one one imagines Virov will hold his spot. Medvedev holding his spot, obviously, as well. Tsitsipas, French Open finalist, he's not going anywhere. After that, 
I would go Alcaraz, Sinner, FAA in some order. Like, that's my next tier of players. And Berrettini's in that mix, certainly. And Rublev's in that group as well. But those three have penetrated that group now, where they're top 10 players, and they're in the mix for year-end finals, in my opinion. I really don't appreciate you wiping out my boyfriend, Casper Ruud, the way you just well, did. I feel like he's that was the really other disrespectful. One in, well, he's the one who's probably now at, like, the bottom of that tier. Because respectfully, like, we've seen him do it at Clay's. On the 250s, we've seen him been solid at the 500s and 1000s, but he hasn't ripped off a 1000 title or a 500 title the way – well, I mean maybe he's done the 500 on the clay, but he's never done, you know, again, the big Masters run or the big slam run the way any of those three young guys have. He still hasn't made a slam quarterfinal. Still so Madrid semifinals, beat Stefano Sissipas on Root. I'm just Fair. saying. I, I feel like – I mean obviously for Casper Root, if you're – if you are Casper Root this clay court season, this, you know – high-minded clay court season of, you know, your Madrid's, your Rome's, your Monte Carlo's. This is your opportunity to really start making your hay. And obviously, and Roland Garros, if he doesn't make a big run this well, year. Well, here would be my counter. And just to add to this, I apologize to cut you off. But yeah. has he done anything to make, to put himself above this group of the Sinner FA Alcaraz? That's what, you like to include him in that group, I would think is fair. But I you can't have him above at this point. I mean, I would say what he was able to do in Turin was was impressive enough. He turned around in 05, head to head against Sancho Rublev to make the semifinals, okay. you know, out of a group that you wouldn't have expected him to make it out of, let's be honest. I mean, that was that was not uh, easy pickings. But obviously, yeah, when you're talking about, you know, potential and prophecy and, sure. and momentum, it obviously favors um, right now your Alcarazes and your Felixes. Maybe not as much Sinner. I think, you know, Sinner's still riding maybe the momentum of last year. But, you know, Casper Ruud just won a big, um, not a big title, he just won a title. <laughs> I'm only not get ahead of myself. But I did just write about Casper and Annette Contevite uh, a few weeks ago because I felt like those two occupy very similar narrative airspaces on their respective tours. They're two players who have done a lot on the tour level. And so what do they need to do to potentially get into the Grand Slams uh, as, as deep as they need to be to you know, really affirm themselves as uh, as next-gen players or you know players for the future? And I think, you know, I think Casper's only still, what, 22, 23? He's not that much older than these guys. You know, no. so it goes to show that, like, you know, who, where you get that sort of who has the the power of anointing. Like, you anoint these, you know, the FAA. You remember that, you know, Ro- Junior Roland Garros final where I think he was he was getting uh, reassured by Yannick Noah. I mean, it's like those sort of, like, seminal moments in, in a player's career coming from, um, you know, these, these origin stories are really quite phenomenal when you think of some of these young players. And also just to, to circle back to where we started – this is sort of an unproblematic trio. And I think if you're the ATP, I think you're hoping and praying that these are players who are in the top 10 and maybe that they do knock out some of your uh, more problematic faves um, who are currently occupying that, that real estate because so far they all seem highly professional, very amiable, pleasant, easy to work with, easy to deal with, easy to talk to, you know, now they just need to start winning, you know, on larger scales. And again, after Miami, I think we're going to have a lot of answers, hopefully have a lot of answers in terms of who is ready to do it sooner rather than later. Yeah. No, I mean, across the board, I think you look for the, at the numbers. You know, Alcaraz now has played a full season of ATP events. He's fourth in break percentage. Yannick Sinner, seventh in break percentage. They're elite at certain things now. You know, the return of serve for them, they've proven to be uh, have elite skills at this level. Uh, it's translated. Felix now up to 14th, career high in hold percentage. And that first serve, it's always flashed elite when he's played his best. But now he's doing it consistently week after week. And we're starting to see the results accumulate. 
I mean, these guys are in the mix now. And, you know, even for Sinner, whose second serve has sat up, and that's been the issue for him from a hold percentage perspective in that first step, getting to that ball on a second serve return, he's now up to, you know, 28th in hold percentage and has a career high over the last 52 weeks hold percentage-wise. He's trending in the right direction. Ditto for Carlos Alcaraz, who has now done it on faster surfaces, isn't just playing on the clay courts anymore. I mean, all of these guys are trending upwards. And... Yeah, I, I just I think that it's funny because I still think you do have the greats, right? You still do have the Djokovic and the Nadal still still playing exceptional levels, and you look at it mathematically. Daniil Medvedev, from a statistics perspective, is playing like an elite of elite all time tennis player, and he has a slam under his belt right now as well. And certainly, Zverev, Tsitsipas getting there also. But now you have these guys in the mix, and they're starting to flash. And it's I. I don't think this is a case like the WTA where everyone's good and no one's great. I think you've got some great players on the ATP Tour, and I think you've got some young players catching up, and they're starting to peek their head towards greatness as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is going back to the Australian Open quarterfinal lineup. I mean, that was a phenomenal draw, and I never feel that way about a men's draw compared to women's draw. Usually you see eight dynamic, charismatic players in your quarterfinals and compared to what we were seeing on the men's side. or something else, yeah. Yeah, It was a really – and all eight of them were like reasonable – Shots. I mean, Botik von der I mean, that Twitter account. I just number one on Twitter. Number top top one club in Twitter. Two days older right than now. me. Two days older than me. Fun yeah. fact. October fourth, ninety five. Shout out. He's got his own fan cam. So I got to make one for you. So that way, <laughs> okay. line up. <laughs> no, you already made one for Phil. You don't have time for me. Um, no, I'm just. I'm just. Don't kidding. tease me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Yeah. No. I would agree with you there. Um, on the flip side, again, a couple more here, and then I'm going to let you go. The Americans, Opelka, wins in Dallas, final last week in Delray. I think he's playing good ball. Like, you look for him, just the stats in particular here in 2021, and I know it's a limited sample size of matches, but for Riley Opelka here this season overall, A, 11-4, B, he's held 96.2% of the time. 96.2. That's not elite. That's... If, if it held out over the course of the season, it would be the single greatest serving season in ATP Tour history. He's number one in hold percentage by like 4%, which is crazy because Isner hasn't exactly served poorly and Berrettini hasn't exactly served poorly this season. But 96.2%, he's been broken less than eight times this season. And I, you know, I, I can get the exact number, but he's played 15 matches. It's just, you know, again, you look for him, the success in tiebreakers, 14 and 7, that's working as well. I would also say watching him in Dallas, Delray, Australia, Sydney, the tennis just seems easier for him now. Like it just feels like things have slowed down a bit and he has a bit more time in rallies to play ground strokes and go down the line and open up opportunities for him to hit, you know, big shots the way a seven-footer can do in a way that no one else can. He's more comfortable as a volleyer. I think he's gotten a lot better. I think Tommy Paul's clearly playing the best tennis of his career. Fritz is clearly playing the best tennis of his career. I know Tiafo's injured right now, but obviously Brooksby just continues to win. You know, Korda continues to win. Nakashima, tough start to his week this week, but has played, obviously, pretty consistent ball over the last 52 weeks. Where are you at with the Americans as we look towards this sunshine stretch here uh, coming up? Well, I'm all over the place. I mean, first of all, are those Opelka stats broken down to when he is and is not allowed to wear a hat? <laughs> I got to make sure. I mean, no. Well, first of all, I don't think he's played a match without a hat this season. So let me. Uh, so it makes it makes it easy. One yeah. denominator, but yeah. I mean, I mean, Opelka is much, and I have to be honest sure. about that. I mean, his Twitter presence is very college sophomore who feels like he. <laughs> 
no, has a lot of takes. They're all varying levels of, and they're all kind of coded with this sort of world weary. I know better than everybody. And it's like, bruh, you're still like what? 21, 22, like, calm down a little bit, just a little bit. Cause I feel like we were all really ready to like Riley O'Falka and like the more he talks. And I think that's maybe part of the appeal for him, or that's more of like, that's the motivation. I think he maybe thrives a bit off of that sort of um, animosity from the fans, which is just disappointing in a way, because I think people were really willing to give him genuine support and motivation. And he seems to be feeding off of the opposite of that. But I mean, you can't knock the results, can't knock the serve. Um, it's been great to see Tommy Paul do as well as he did. I mean, I think he had certainly had an opportunity to pull off the upset against Baratine. It's a shame that ended with an injury uh, retirement, but, you know, taking that momentum back from last fall when he finally won his first title is now a top 40 player, has an opportunity to move up even further this week. Um, great for him. You know, Taylor Fritz has opportunities as well over the next couple of weeks. It also is one of those players with that Indian Wells buffer where he can really, you know, play through the hard court swing and not be worried about a big chunk of points coming off his ranking until the fall. That's a great opportunity for him. I mean, and I go back with Taylor Fritz, that sort of um, bionic nature. I mean, the fact that he was able to shake off what seemed to be a a season ending injury and, you know, come out of surgery, just ready to play the grass court season was insane. I mean, that, that kind of stamina and durability of body is something I imagine will serve him well in the future. And then I think, yeah, there's a really solid generation of American players. I don't know if there's a slam champion among them, but there's certainly a lot of second week uh, standouts that I think we're going to see over the next couple of years. A lot of Grand Slam fourth rounds, Grand Slam quarterfinalists, maybe even a Grand Slam semifinal from one of these players, you know, one of these days. I think it's it's just that this generation sort of co- coalescing around the, the, you know, sort of the, the three of Opelka, Fritz, and Paul, and then sort of the younger guys, the Nakashimas, the Sebastian Cordas, you know, Francis Jaffa is always a wild card. It, it feels like he's probably coming back in time for Indian Wells, Miami. It seemed like he was going to be off for longer when he made that announcement. It almost seems like, I don't even know why he bothered making an announcement. He was going to be gone for such a short period of time, but hopefully you see him come back and, and get his, you know, get his flowers from the North American crowd. He certainly has earned it. So I hope to see him back as soon as possible. Yeah. I think it's just, again, and I think Opelka has said this a lot is that we don't know if there's a grand slam champion in this group, but I think there's a lot of different players, a lot of different personalities to keep American fans interested and getting them to tune into some of these later rounds of big tournaments and grand slams. Cause I think at any given point, there's so many of them that just by law of averages, one or two is going to continue to sneak through. And who knows what happens at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, 13 Americans right now in the top 100 and you know, nine of them are 28 or younger and, you know, eight of them, if you take out Garone, 26 or younger. And yeah, the group, it does feel like they're going to continue to get better, right? Even at 26 years old, I still think we're going to see a bit more from Mackie McDonald and certainly on the hard courts with his athleticism and aggressive game style. It feels like when he plays his best, go watch that City Open final run last year where he had Sinner on the brink and beats Nishikori the round before and played just exceptional tennis. And I mean, yeah, it also feels like the group can continue to get better. And we're seeing Riley finally kind of break. You know, he's always been good on serve, but now he's finally starting to play the power tennis of a seven-footer. And obviously all the athleticism he brings with him and the skill set beyond that, that much more helpful. Fritz athletically continues to get better. Tommy Paul just continues to bring an element of focus and consistency week in, week out that was missing uh, early in his career. And, you know, again, they're no longer the young Americans. They're the we're entering our prime Americans. It's the Brooksby's of the world and the Cordas and the Nakashima's who you feel like are just scratching the surface of their potential. I agree with you. It's just a lot of bites in the a- at the apple. Like right away, you know, Isner, Opelka, Fritz, Corda, Tiafo, probably Tommy Paul. And I can't imagine Brooksby doesn't get a wild card if he's right around the cutoff. 
get into Indian Wells here this year. And like right away, that's just a bunch of players in what is not the biggest draw. And absolutely at the Grand Slams, hopefully it gets to a point where, you know, right now it would just be Isner, Opelka, Fritz seated at Wimbledon. But if you, you imagine if one of those three guys are seated, you feel like one of them will have a good shot at reaching the round of 16. And look, round of 16 shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to win Grand Slam titles, obviously. But this gets you closer. Like for the longest time, just getting anyone to the round of 16 felt like a massive victory. That's no longer the case. I think if you look at an Opelka or a Fritz, particularly at Wimbledon U.S. Open this year, round of 16 should be the expectation. And again, the easiest preseason bet in tennis or prediction was to say Fritz was going to make his first second week at a slam this year. Well, he's now done that. I would expect all of them to do it. And then Korda's done it already. You know, Brooksby last year, 6-1 first set against Novak Djokovic, where Riley Opelka was right. How did Djokovic get a game off that guy? Um, like... It's your, and by the way, calling it the tweets of a college sophomore, that's another very accurate take by you. Hard to disagree. There are times when you're just like, you know, you just could have just not sent it. Like, you could have just been like, I'm going to let this one go. Um, but hey, content is content. I get it. Um, yeah, I, it's a very deep group. Now, it's a deep group that's getting better. That would be my big thing is everyone keeps saying, you know, oh, well, is there a Grand Slam champion amongst the group? Right now, no. But it's not a prohibitive no. It's a no with the option of this group continues to get better. No, absolutely. I mean, I th- and I think, you know, the no is also, you know, dependent on how much longer, you know, your Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, I guess, I guess at this point, maybe just Djokovic and Nadal are still competing for major titles. I mean, I think without those two players sort of running, continuing to run the table as they have, that does open, you know, that's one more slot, you know, in, in, a, in a round of round of 16 in a quarterfinal bracket that can really make all the difference. And, you know, the men's game has seen some wild and wacky results, you know, pre, you know, big four oligarchy. So it, there's nothing to say that that's not what how the tour is going to evolve after Djokovic and Adal finally decide to stop playing. Uh, so I think the sky is sort of the limit. And, um, you know, again, I just if you're getting into men's tennis as a young American kid, there's just so many different personalities and faces to, to kind of get behind and get into. And I think that's sort of the ultimate ideal, especially if you're someone, you know, repping the USDA or something, trying to get fans involved. Like these are, these are players you're going to see at big tournaments, no matter what. So I think that's always something to root for. Yeah, no, I would agree with you there. Um, with all that said, last one for you, rejuvenated Djokovic. He has looked very good on the court this week. And I know, again, he's still persona non grata for certain events. I believe that was your term on Twitter. And um, certainly will we even see him at the Sunshine Swing? It's a question that remains unanswered. From a tennis perspective, if he gets into the French Open, if he gets into Wimbledon, if he gets into the U.S. Open, I'm picking him at all three. Like, he does look locked in right now. I mean... It just sort of feels like it's strange viewing watching Djokovic right now sure. because it just feels like to what end? You know, if you're playing this well this week and you can't play Indian Wells in Miami, well, first of all, if you're Djokovic, that does take a bit of pressure off of you because you don't really feel like you have to economize your energy or your intensity. You can let it all go in Dubai, which has been seemingly a great emotional release for him. There's been a, a large number of uh, Serbian, if not Djokovic fans in attendance has sort of been like this weird sort of inverse COVID bubble that he's creating of, of uh of crowds who are really going to appreciate him being there. Maybe not for always all the right reasons, given why he's not playing some of these other tournaments, but um, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like he'll be in Indian Wells, Miami, the uh, Italian government, you know, made a statement about how there won't be any exceptions for unvaccinated players. 
French Open in Wimbledon, you know, that six month grace period for those who've been previously infected, he's going to be right under the wire for those two tournaments. Certainly, if not, if not the French, certainly Wimbledon. And then if he's not able to get into the States for Indian Wells, Miami, there's no nothing to say he'll get in for the U.S. Open. So it's just it's sort of, you know, it sort of becomes a very short season for Novak Djokovic. You don't really know where he's going to play next. And so he can really afford to let it all go here and, you know, make a case that he needs to be at these tournaments. And maybe that's part of the strategy. It's like, let me try to play as phenomenally as I can to try to convince somebody to uh, to uh, make an exception for me and, and just show that you, know, you can't have your tournament without me, the number one player. But I think we also saw in Australia that, you know, a tournament director can want you to be in your draw as much as possible. But if, you know, if the government doesn't want you there, then that's a, a totally different scenario. So I think, yeah, it's, and, and again, it just makes for a weird transfer of power over the next couple of weeks. If Medvedev makes number one, because Djokovic can't play, you can't say Medvedev hasn't earned it because in a way, unlike Djokovic, who really played peak tennis at the slams and was sort of iffy everywhere else for large swaths of the 2021 season. Medvedev has compiled a very um, credible resume across um, all four quarters of the last 12 months. And so it's certainly an earned victory. It's certainly going to feel a bit hollow if he can't, you know, earn this number one the right way. But I mean, Djokovic has sort of, you know, redefined what is right and what is wrong uh, in the universe, according to Novak. So I think that's that that makes it tricky. But yeah, good for him that he's playing well in Dubai, but I don't really know where this where this leads and where he goes next. Very fair. The only thing I would add to that is fundamentally as, as someone who loves tennis, it is very fun to see someone also just you can see how much Novak Djokovic is enjoying himself on court and obviously it goes without saying in the midst of global pandemic, how could he sustain this moving forward? Get vaccinated. Listen to the scientists who have spent their life for exactly this scenario and trying to put us in a position where we can continue to have some modicum of normalcy uh, amidst this pandemic. He gets vaccinated. We can see this joy expressed each and every week. That said, you can see the joy in his face competing. It's been fun to watch a crowd just embrace and interact and enjoy this sort of event. But yeah, I mean, certainly when you look here uh, for Novak Djokovic, uh, I mean, again, all of this could be alleviated moving forward. At the same time, he's lights out right now. Like, I will be shocked if he does not win that event, particularly when you see guys like, you know, Andre Rublev's gas. Like, Andre Rublev's now, this is what, his third consecutive week, and you just don't know how much he has left in the tank, and you're looking at the draw. It's going to be really fun, given Chapo, Hercott, Sinner, all still alive. I would say Mackie knocks out Rublev tomorrow. That would be my hot take for all of you listening or my preview, I suppose. But, you know, that's a really fun event. You look at Acapulco, even without Zverev, you know, Tsitsipas, Nori, Karina Busta on the bottom, and obviously Nadal, Fritz Medvedev up top, Tommy Paul, you know, if you're American, Stefan Kozlov still alive as well. It's really fun tennis, and then I, I didn't even get to, you know, we of course we have clay court events going on right now in Santiago. Christian Green just trying to hold on to that top 30 spot, and he has not had a successful start to his clay court season, but you've got the Sebastian Baezes of the world, Mumir Kasmenovic continuing his excellent start to the season, and it's, it's, it's fun time right now. I do think, again, we talk about the depth on the WTA Tour all of the time. I think you see a similar depth emerging right now in the men's game. I also think, you know, out are the... God, I'm trying to think who would be in this. I mean, out are the Verdascos of the world. In are the Pedro Martinez Porteros of the world. Like, that's the sort of shift you also see happening in that 30 through 60s of the rankings as well. It's the Munars. It's the Martinez's, the Kasmanovic's of the world making their move. Sebastian Baez's as well. Fun times on the ATP Tour. So with that in mind, any other thoughts, takeaways we didn't get to here today? 
I have a soul cycle class in 10 minutes, so no. <laughs> okay, well with all of that said, as always, David, you talked about something you wrote for tennis.com earlier. Um, what, what, are, what are you up to? What can we expect from you over the next couple of weeks? Uh, that's my big story for this week because I will be off for the okay. next couple of days, but heading back into Indian Wells, Miami, hope to be covering a lot of great stuff on the men's and women's sides and all of it can be found on tennis.com and promoted on social media at Twitter and Instagram at DKTNNS. That's DKTNNS. That's what I like. We do have a 10-day break coming up, right, in the schedule after – or at least on the men's side after this week. It's like a nice little – God, nice I hope little, so. Yeah. <laughs> Good. It'll be time for all of us to play catch up. I like it. No, with all that said, as always, appreciate you taking the time to chat. Of course, a shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point for the sport. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15 for all of the content. CrackedRackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review this show. Great shot podcast. Cracked interviews podcast. Our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on any of our coverage. A shout out as always to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out. Making all of this content possible with all of that set for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners? And that's been the break. (laughs) And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, my friend.